Welcome to season two of The Unforgiving 60 with your hosts, Ben Pronk and Tim Curtis. Two ex-SAS guys armed with MBAs. In this show, Ben and Tim seek out people leading lives less ordinary and talk with them about how they fill their unforgiving minutes and what helps them go always a little further. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Unforgiving 60 and to this second half of our special double episode speaking with Wayne Jones. Now, if you haven't listened to part one, stop what you're doing, cease and desist, go back, crank up part one and have a listen and then come back and join us. Or don't, actually, listen to this and then go back to the first one, whatever you want to do. However, we thoroughly recommend having a listen to the first one. It talks a lot about uh, Wayne's background, his early days, and his time within the Army, um, and leads us up to where we're going to, to hit off today, and that's speaking about Wayne's role, uh, his current role, as the CEO of iFly Australia, a super successful uh, indoor skydiving facility um, that has recently been listed on the Australian stock market. Um, Wayne's going to share some of those experiences, some of the similarities and differences uh, between leadership within uniform and in business, and talk about some of the skills that he's learned from his time in the Army that he's found are relevant as the CEO of a listed company. Let's get on with the show. There's a song that you recorded called Kelly's Last Dance. Can you explain what is or was Kelly's Last Dance and how you recorded it? Um, it was an attempt at songwriting. I think that song took forever to write. And it started off, I think it started off as a Ned Kelly song and turned into an ex-girlfriend of mine. See, I'd explained it to Tim that you were going out with Ned Kelly. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I actually didn't know it had that Bush Ranger thing. I, I, I knew that Kelly wasn't the ex-girlfriend's name, but I, I thought it was all ex-girlfriend. It was. It ended up being all ex-girlfriend. Um, and I think Ned Kelly was kind of what we were using as a, as a way to be able to tell the story, maybe. I don't know. Um, and when did we play it? I don't even know when we played that song. Um, I reckon that recording was... Must have been in Afghanistan. In Afghanistan, yeah. And I think it was, as you said just before, the, the nylon string, that the cheap locally procured nylon string guitars. Yeah, it doesn't sound great. The lyrics sound even worse. Um, put, put some fuzziness through it or something if you're going to play it, mate. <laughs> I reckon it's good to go. I've always liked that song. Um, I'm surprised it didn't chart, probably because we never <laughs> recorded or released it. But... Oh, we <laughs> One I have got, which I'll, I'll dig up the audio for, but was a cover we did of um, One Crowded Hour from, I think, the same location, which I reckon sounds like a cracker. Uh, that was a good song that, that um, I think you eventually learned all the words to. 
I don't think I ever got all the words. <laughs> Not in the right order. What a word song. <laughs> Anything with more than one verse, I always struggle with. And then I'd have to look at you to get the start of it, just to get me on a roll. Well, that, that's a particularly complicated guitar song, so I think I was probably struggling to keep up as well. <laughs> yeah. Right, awesome. Should you expect to see something that you'd never seen in somebody you'd known? Since you were 16, is it love? Is it bold from the blue? Then what is that bold but a glorified screw and that doesn't hold nothing together? Far from these nonsense bars and their nowhere music It's making me sick, I know it's making you sick There's nothing there, it's like eating air It's like drinking gin with nothing else in And that doesn't hold nothing together But for one crowded hour You are the only one in the room I sit around with those bumps in the night To y'all be counting in the gloom I thought I had found my golden September In the middle of that purple June But one crowded hour Would lead to my record room I know you like your boys who Take their medicine From the bowl of their silver spoon Who'd run away Let's transition into business, Wayne. Um, let's talk a little bit about your business now. You're a listed company. How did that all come about? Um, so uh, we we had this idea back in pretty early. It was like 2010, 2011 or something like that. Where we, Danny Hogan, my um, business partner, came back from a, an exchange with the Americans and he been in these wind tunnels and they were using them for, for training, these um, skydiving simulators. Um, and he came straight to me when he got back off his tour. Well, actually, he was still on his tour and he was starting to send me emails and stuff about these things. And I'd, I'd flown in one once before in Paris Valley over in California. And uh, we just got talking and we decided that we were going to try to build one in Australia and that we were going to stay in the army and, and build a wind tunnel and kind of set this little business up on the side. Um, and that, that was kind of the start of it. And uh, we ended up realising pretty quickly that, you know, you've got to actually get a bit of money behind you to start a business up and you've got to actually have a business plan <laughs> and a bit of a vision. And uh, so, you know, that started our journey into learning how to, how to write emails and raise money. Um, I remember at one stage you talking about this and, you know, you like you say, we, we've got to raise this thing called capital and, you know, we think we've got a good plan. There's these Ukrainians who are going to offer us, some, you know, enough money. And I was just thinking, beauty, I can't wait till Wayne and Danny get their thumbs bloody coming back to them in the mail as a result of late repayments. But yeah. um, obviously turned out a bit bit, uh, bit more successful than that. So well, yeah, how did yeah, it go? Yeah. You were still in uniform. Um, you had the, the germ of an idea. And it's probably worthwhile for our listeners. Um, Wayne at that time was, I'd reckon, probably the the most experienced uh, freefaller in the the military at that time. You'd led the first operational freefall jump in Afghanistan, um, and so was very much you know in that space in terms of the military applications of freefall. Danny, not so much. <laughs> <laughs> but, water um, operator. Yeah. Good water operator. But how hard is it? You just 
jump out yeah. of a plane. You're not going to go up. It's, start yeah, falling. Yeah, start falling. <laughs> so what what happened from there, mate? Um, so, you know, we, we kind of belted down doors and walked footpaths for a long time, mate. Flying over to Sydney, you know, trying to find spaces to put it in. We didn't really know, you know, where to learn everything from the ground up. But I'm, I'm talking everything, mate. I, I, I honestly didn't even know how to how to do a decent signature block or what font to write emails in or what. I, I knew absolutely nothing about business. Um, so, you know, I was just literally soaking up things as we kind of met people and dodging sharks along the way and getting, you know, bitten by a few and, and just kind of keep, kept building it up and just didn't give up and um, it took us years. Um, yeah. Two or three years later, we ended up uh, through another mate, uh, um, Dids, who I was sitting in the battle troop office at, at the time, he just come in and said, uh, how are you going with your wind tunnel? And I was like, oh, I don't know, mate. Don't know how we're going to get it off the ground. Um, and he said, I've got a rich uncle in Sydney. Do you want me to introduce you to him? I said, all right, sounds good. So I met, met up with his uncle. His name was John. And um, we had a chat. And, and I, at that time, I was just kind of trying to understand how public markets worked. Because I, I think I'd realised at that time I was never going to be able to raise the money privately. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Um, I asked him about it then and he just said, no, no, this isn't something you can do through an IPO. Um, you know, kind of, I'll, I'll have a think about it. So I went back to Perth. He rang me a few weeks after that and said, oh, you know what, I'm ready to have a crack. Um, I think I think it's a, a good story and I think there's a real decent business model here, but we've got to go large, we've got to build more than just one and you've got to get out of the army and you've got to do all these things. Mm-hmm. Um, so I rang Danny up and said, mate, it's, it's, we're, at the, uh, we're at the no-go criteria now. Are we going to do this or not? He said yes. Um, so that was me then done. I was, I was all, all businessman from that point onwards. It was all about just transitioning out of the military. Uh, John offered up his – he had an office in Chatswood in, uh, in northern Sydney. Um, he told me I could use it for two days a week if I wanted to in a small desk in the corner. So I pretty much moved in there <laughs> and uh, set up everything, all my belongings, the whole lot was in there, just, just filled this little office up and just worked in there the whole time. Um, we wrote the business plans. I, I literally used John as all of my resources and um, started meeting some more people. Um, there was one instrumental character I left out actually before John was a guy named Steve Baxter. Who, uh, who was a very successful businessman and a, uh, an entrepreneur. He, he, had, he had had experience before and, and he was also an ex-military guy. So he became my uh, mentor and he was, he was the guy that kept me on the straight and narrow as far as how the business needs to be structured and what we need to do. And John was the guy that facilitated all the admin and logistics that were involved in you know, raising the capital for it and, and setting the company up and, and doing all those things. Um, so I had some really good people around me. So number one, I established a really good team. Number two, I learned really bloody quickly and, and worked my ass off. Um, and we pulled it off and we, we, we wrote a prospectus. We conducted an IPO. We raised just enough money to get the IPO over the line. Um, we got every waiver under the ASX listing rules to have enough shareholders to list it. And then we listed on the, uh, in, in January um, 2012. Um, 2013. So, yeah, it was a uh, bloody hard work. And I remember saying at the time, I'm never going to do another IPO. Um, and since then, I have written another prospectus and have done another couple of capital raises. So maybe I'm a glut for punishment. Um, but it was, a, it was an unbelievable experience, but very difficult. 
And so you've you've raised the capital, you've done the the public listing, and then you got to get to the business of actually building this thing. You chose Penrith as the first site. Yeah, so Penrith was already kind of chosen at that point in time, um, and, and I think Danny just cold called them. To be honest, um, he was he had this mindset that we needed to be in a in a precinct, and it needed to be something that had foot traffic and and already had a reason for people to go there. Um, and and Penrith at that time was a perfect location for a number of reasons. We had the New South Wales tourism, they were all pushing out towards the Blue Mountains and we were the gateway to the Blue Mountains. We had Richmond Air Force Base to the north, 30 kilometres, and we had Holsworthy to the south and we had Picton, the largest drop zone in Australia, just to the south as well. So it was like the perfect area to set this thing up. At the time, Panthers were going through a few financial issues. Um, We met them purely at the right time. I presented terribly, um, (laughs) straight off of an old laptop the world's worst PowerPoint presentation. Um, but they ended up putting it up through their board and we, and we got a site. Um, so we ended up having a, a site that was dependent on capital and then we had to, had to raise the capital then to, to see it all through. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, um, first one we built in Penrith. We opened it on Anzac Day, day after Anzac Day, 2014. Um, I was sewing curtains on the night of Anzac Day to hang, hang up on the front. <laughs> because we hadn't finished all the construction yet, so I had to hide all the rubble. <laughs> we went down to the spotlight and bought all this black material and sewed it up. And then when we were exhausted, I sat up on the roof with Danny and we shared a, a toolie of, uh, I think it was toolies new or something, <laughs> and then waited for the carnage for the first day of opening the next day. Um, so, yeah, it was pretty pretty nuts. It took us about 18 months to build that facility, um, and it was every part of it was a headache. <laughs> we did excavation, you name it, the first of its kind in Australia, Mechanical engineers that had no idea about the loadings that were required to cool down this thing. Mate, it was, it was challenging. Yeah. Um, but, you know, we pulled it off with hard work. And since then, three more sites in Australia? <clears throat> so then we, yeah, so we had to, we had, because now we were listed mm-hmm. and we had all the pressures of being a listed company and, you know, shareholders and institutional investors, then, and they want growth. They, they, they need growth, so we were pushing hard. Um, we had another site. We wanted to get up into Queensland, up in the Gold Coast. Um, so we spent a lot of time finding a site up there, and we, we found one in Surface Paradise, which was perfect for what we needed. It was two blocks side by side. We took the both of them, and we built a building over, and we built a, a tunnel there. Um, um, once again, another absolute nightmare. The building company went broke. There was just never-ending problem after problem after problem, but we, we got it up and running. Um, and then we went and went back to Perth and built one in, in Belmont. Um, I wanted to build one in Cottesloe, but at the time, <laughs> my chief marketing officer told me I was an idiot to, to build one out there, and um, you need to look in this corridor here. So he kind of did a bit of a recce on the city unbiased recce and we, and we ended up picking the spot that we picked, which is one of the busiest roads in Perth. Mm. To give a bit of a background on some of the engineering challenges, can you explain for our listeners what a wind tunnel is? Like what, what's, what sort of goes into it from a me- mechanical point of view? Yeah, so Penrith's 26 metres high above the ground, 10 metres under the ground, 300 tonnes of concrete and steel under there. Um, a series of technical equipment being turbines and glass and specialty, uh, specialty items. And on the roof, four 450 horsepower fans, electric powered with three substations powering those fans. Um, so it's a, it's a big building. Um, 
all for a 16-foot diameter glass flying chamber. Um, so, yeah, a lot of... Uh, a lot of kind of technical experts required. <laughs> well above my pay grade to work out all that stuff. And and of course, in addition to it being a, a great experience and something that a, a tourist can do, it's also just worth its weight in gold for people who want to get better at sort of relative work in a skydiving sense, or for military professionals who need to learn how to fly. Yeah, exactly. So we are the we. About 50-50 as far as utilisation goes, first timers versus professionals. And professionals are military, skydivers um, predominantly, and first timers are, you know, your, your intro packages, your kids, your birthday parties. So it's about 50-50 utilisation um, and with, a, I guess, a yield split of around 70-30 because the professionals use it during the downtime and the first timers use it during the weekends and school holidays. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a... It's a it's a simulator. It's a flight simulator, um, and the everything we kind of specialise in within the company is about simulation. Uh, and when I, I'll go on and talk about diversification soon, but it's it, we're a simulation company, so we simulate. We, we're training um, military and skydivers in the wind tunnel, um, but there's other other ways that we can simulate training and 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 really. Um, kind of value add to any kind of training organisations through through VR and other things that we're looking at at the moment as well. Um, so, yeah, it's a big glass uh, free-fall simulator. Mm. And how close is it to simulating the real thing? <clears throat> um, from I've done 3,000 skydives over my time um, and I fly in the wind tunnel quite a bit now as well. Um, and to me... It's very similar. Um, I can tell the difference, obviously. The, the, the wind quality is a little bit different. There's a little, you know, certain aspects, that reference points and things like that. Um, but you can literally learn all of your safety skills and all of your basic skills in the wind tunnel. Um, before Australia had a wind tunnel, we were the first to build one. Um, I don't think an Australian skydiving team um, had ever podiumed on on a, on a world level, um, and now we've got world champion teams. You know, representing hmm. Australia, it's really raised the bar on the skill level here. Um, and same same with the military guys; they use the wind tunnels very often for their training, um, and it's resulted in a a way more efficient way to train those guys. They're not tumbling off the back of the back of the aircraft until their emergency parachute pops open for them. <laughs> They're, uh, they're actually stable and confident in what they can do in that, in that environment before they actually have to do it. Um, when we were pushing the boundary on the freefall side of things in the military back in the day, we were jumping with all kinds of weird and wonderful stuff hanging off us out of planes and, and crazy things were happening. Yeah. Whereas if we'd had a wind tunnel at that point in time, it would have made life a lot easier. You know, We could have literally trialled these things quickly in a safe environment and then tried them out in the sky after that. Um, so it's really changed the changed the, the playing field. So you can jump with combat equipment and or any other odd object. Yeah, correct. Yeah. Well, um, so the guys will come up to us with their own weird, wonderful things, whatever they're doing these days. Um, we'll, we'll quickly make sure that it's not going to destroy the place or destroy them. <laughs> um, and then we'll, we'll, you know, whether it's a closed door session or whether it's something that's kind of more benign, then yeah, we'll, we'll definitely trial it out. How many parachuting dogs have we had and or any other animals? 
No, there's been all kinds of weird requests to go in there. I won't put a live animal in the in the wind tunnel only because my wife would would kill me. Um, I, I did want to fly my own beagle in there at one point, but I was talked out of it. <laughs> so, mate, we've spoken about leadership in the SAS, and obviously a very different leadership role in terms of context here. What sort of lessons have you brought across from the the military that that are applicable in your your role as CEO of a listed company? And what have you found different? Um, I think the answer to that has changed for me over the years. Um, when I first started off, uh, I was literally just using everything military style. You know, all the terminology was the same. I figured that if it worked in the military, it's got to work everywhere. Um, and that, that was kind of how I shaped my style. But since then and over the years, um, there's so much more to it. I mean, the... the, the, the Things that drive people outside of the military and things that drive people in the military are not even close. Mm. Um, you're dealing with a much broader range of people outside. You're dealing with people that you rely on, that you have no idea how they do their job. In the military, that doesn't always, you know, you, you've normally got a handle on what's going on, unless it's yeah. someone flying a helicopter for you or something else. But yeah, as you know, in the business but, but world, even. Even then, I was going to say, you know, there's a standard, you know, there's, you know, they're a product yeah. that's pretty homogenous. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it's really, my, my leadership style has evolved heaps over the years. Um, um, but, but one thing that I guess stays standard throughout the, um, throughout the whole process is that, is that decision-making process. I think that's the, that's the piece that I always fall back on. Um, and having a system to make decisions on in your own head and, and all your other stuff, you know, that you read in books and all the rest of the stuff, your risk assessment, all that stuff shines through. But I think the main thing you learn as a leader of the Defence Force and, and that carries through exactly the same is that decision-making process to make sure that um, you've got a system and, and you, can, you can back that process all the way through. Um, but then, you know, but everything else is variable, I think. Everything's variable. Um, there's just so many different aspects to it. Um, you know, you've got, we, we, last year, I think we had about 130 staff, um, and they range from kids that are on, you know, junior pay on their ward rate through to lawyers and executives. Um, so, you know, you've got to, you've got to, you've really got to temper how you handle situations and, and make sure that that once again, you're true to yourself and your company and make sure that everyone sees exactly what you're doing and what your vision is and, um, and trying to get that through. The other real challenging thing, and it's probably not so much for military guys that move out of the military and then step into another large organisation. So I guess if you stepped out of the military and moved into Macquarie Bank or JP Morgan or something, you'd be able to carry a lot of your processes and your policies and all that stuff. It's already there, right? You've got this big mm -hmm. infrastructure that you know, you know how it works, you know how to get things done. When you're starting your own business up, none of that exists. You're literally starting from scratch. You don't have a single policy. So you've got, you've got to start all that stuff up and you've got all the procedures in place. Um, and you've got no one else you can escalate it to. You know, you can't, you can't make an emergency phone call to, the, to whoever, chief of defence force, yeah. and say, we've got a problem here, we need some more funding or we, we need some more people. That just doesn't happen. Um, you know, so there's, there's a whole lot of things. I think it's, I think it's a lot harder outside. Um, it's a lot more challenging um, uh, and uh, I don't think that everyone that comes out of the military into a leadership role in the civilian world, I don't think it, it's, a, it's a blanket way that it, it corresponds. 
I think mm. some people struggle. I think a lot of people aren't suited to it. Um, but those that are seem to do really well. There's the other thing that, you know, there's a lot of good stuff that happens in the military in terms of training, and we've spoken about leadership in that, but it's a, a wildly different context. And that whole, you know, that pesky little factor of money where, you know, you've got to make a profit in most uh, enterprises in the outside world, whereas defence is all about training. They're never actually sort of, um, or very rarely put into to operations. And so you can afford to have these massive training budgets and this time dedicated to development that, you know, is a luxury in most other companies. Yeah. Yeah, and, and you've got to be super dynamic on the outside too. I mean, you can't, in, in a military unit, you can't just say, oh, well, it's not working out that well this year. Um, let's, let's look forward to next year. We're, we're outside. I mean, the, the amount of times that we have restructured, we've grown, we've shrunk, we've grown. We've, you just got to be super dynamic all the way through because mm. everything is about that bottom line and, and everything's about, you know, there is a commercial end state here. Mm. Um, and that's, that's where you need to stay focused on. Um, we talk yeah. about the we talk about the theatre of leadership. You know, you told that little story about you leading your patrol up the hill in Afghanistan. Everyone shattered, and you've got to demonstrate this presence that motivates them to get to the top. How is that different in a listed company? You've got to convince shareholders and others of your vision. How do you yeah. hold that presence <clears throat> on stage? Stakeholder management, I think, is the is the key to. Um, making sure that nothing blows out. So you've got various stakeholders. You've got, you know, whether you're in a building phase, growth phase or not, um, you've got your advisors, you've got your shareholders, you've got your key contracts, you've got your staff. Um, you know, there's a lot of different parts to the, to the, to the puzzle. Um, you need to understand exactly what you're trying to achieve. And if you're not clear on that, no one else is going to be, and it's just going to get worse and worse as it goes along. Um, and you've got to make sure that your team's clear on that too, your, your tight leadership team. Um, I've always really relied on my um, managers and my leadership team. Um, and and it, it comes back to that respect thing, you know. You, you've really got to respect each other and have a, uh, a common goal um, and, and really understand what that is, you know. What, what exactly are we trying to achieve here? Um, and you know, there's obviously various ways to do that, but... Um, whichever way you choose, you've just got to be consistent with it. Mm. Um, and, and, and if you if you believe in what you're doing, then all of a sudden stakeholders will and shareholders will and then all of a sudden you'll get a bit more support and it'll start building up. And when times are bad, then that that's when it's tough. Uh, times are good. Anyone's, anyone can run a company. Mm. But when times are tough, that's when you, you, know, you look over your shoulder in that last analogy and there's no one there. <laughs> you, you've got to go back, pick them up, regroup, and uh, and literally start again. In some cases, and, and you know we've been through some really tough times lately, and I've learned so much more out of that than out of any of the successes. And um, it's made us bulletproof and fearless. And and now, as as the company's now coming out of some dark times, we're in a really strong place now because we've been through it. We know a lot more now. Mm. Um, and and we are fearless, and and you know we're all very bullish and we're very tight. So it's it's when you when you get it right, it's a good feeling. <laughs> you describe yourself as a simulation company. What's next? So we we, we had the, the the wind tunnels are, are really good, right? They're they're very good cash generating businesses, um, but they're they're very capital intensive. As as we've gone through, they take a long time to build and they cost a lot of money. Um, we were looking at some businesses out of Shanghai. We were, we were pretty close to pulling the trigger on some 
joint ventures out there um, with wind tunnels. And part of that process, we came along some virtual reality things because the sites that we were looking at were too big for just a wind tunnel. We needed to fit some other entertainment style things in there. So it was all about entertainment. So we started researching virtual reality and where that was up to. And I'd already kind of blown it off because, okay, this, that, that VR bubble happened a few years ago and that's, you know, there's no future in that. Um, but, you know, doing some more research and getting some very clever people involved and on board, um, we've realised that right now is perfect for that and that the tech cycle's spot on. Um, so we've, we've just launched some entertainment consumer-style VR um, um, locations. We've, we've opened Sydney. We've got Gold Coast opening pretty soon. We've got some other sites that we're looking at in Sydney. Um, whereby lot lo lower capex, um, um, but but faster and greater returns, um, and very scalable. Mm. One thing we've learned is scalability. You've got to you've got to be able to scale organically quickly, and and um, you've got to be able to do it controlled. And and that's where we've we've worked really hard on this new business model. But on the other side of that, there's the B two B side. So. I want to start pushing a little bit more out of entertainment. That's been our bag for the last six years. Let's push into B2B now, more training, more simulation, and let's involve some first responders. Let's look at some military requirements. Let's look at other requirements because they've all got the same issues, right? They want to train their guys. They've got to tick all the boxes from an OH&S point of view. Yep. Um, how can they do that? Because a lot of these um, first responder businesses and other are commercially based as well. So they need to do it efficiently. So we've been looking into how we do that. Um, so we've got some pretty exciting things that we're working on and it feels really, um, uh, I guess, we're at that point where we're about to be able to um, push hard on some, on some really good new ideas that we've been kind of working on for years. So it's great. And Steve Baxter, he's a tech entrepreneur. Has he been involved through this new part of the journey, Wayne? Yeah, so Steve's always been a brilliant sounding board for anything tech orientated because of, you know, he's obviously seen a lot. He's seen a lot of businesses come and go. He's seen a lot of ideas. And I don't know how many tech people you've dealt with, but they can be quite fickle sometimes. And, <laughs> uh, you know, the next shiny thing and they're gone. Um, a guy that was instrumental for this, for us, uh, was a guy named Kim Hopwood who, who came over. He contacted me at the time when we were at our lowest point in the company and I was, I was doing some restructuring. Um, he had just sold a marketing agency and he was very tech-minded um, and the timing of that was perfect. So he ended up taking on a lot of the, I guess, the tech uh, um, investigation side of it, all the DD, working out who our suppliers were going to be and what games we were going to use and what else is out there. We joined all the organisations and we, we just spent a whole lot of time researching it. Uh, and getting stuck into it. And the actual latest COVID lockdown has actually been a period of consolidation for us to to really solidify this business plan for this um, for this VR stuff. So yeah, Steve's been a great sounding board and a great kind of uh, binary guy. Yes, no, that's not working. Um, um, but I'm, I need to attribute most of it to, uh, to Kim who's been really working hard on it. So it's been that's exciting. Wayne, I want to finish up by talking a little bit about resilience. Now, we touched on um, a bit earlier your discussions about Cabello and, and closing the loop from a mental perspective in terms of dealing with trauma. But it's not just the acute trauma of, um, you know, a situation like that. You know, the, the everyday grind of being in a high-pressure sort of role like you're in now. How do you deal with that? How do you sort of keep going um, from a, a personal perspective? 
Yeah, I, I, I knew when you said you were going to ask about this, I was just hey. thinking, how, how on earth am I going to answer that? Um, I think it's all about perspective. Like, I, I, I've got a brilliant young family and my life's good. Um, and, and it's about trying to really bring yourself back to that all the time. Yeah. No matter how tough it gets, you know, and you, you know, it's like when you put yourself out there. I mean, the, the scariest thing about starting up a business is you're putting yourself up to fail and you're putting yourself up for judgment. And everyone's yep. an expert and they're very quick to bloody point the finger at what you're doing wrong. Um, and when that gets too much, when, it, when that starts weighing on me, I just think, oh, hang on a sec, look at those three kids I've got, you know, and look at, look at, look at that little, little, little tribe I've, I've formed over here. And, uh, and I'll just think of all the good things, you know, and don't let it weigh me down. Now, that's way easier said than done. And don't sure. get me wrong, I mean, I've had... Can't even count the amount of nights where I haven't slept at all because I'm up all night. Absolute anxiety attacks over something that's going on. Yep. Um, and that's you know it's driven my wife crazy. And and that's <laughs> I guess what what a lot of people pull the pin on is you know that can get too much. The pressure, especially you know being a company and having stakeholders and having shareholders, there is a lot of pressure there. Yeah. There's a lot of um, um, responsibility and having staff and having you're responsible for all these people's livelihoods you know so the pressure can be overwhelming um but i think um resilience just comes from having a perspective on that and, and just saying yeah look, there's a lot of people out there having a lot harder than i am um I, I don't think i've got anything to complain about bounce back go hard and, and don't be scared to to fail yeah um and once again, a lot easier said than done. I remember some of the earlier articles on us when we set up one of the wind tunnels, I think it was the Gold Coast Tunnel. I remember read, there was an article in the paper and it was one of those online ones and there was all the, mate, I only joined Facebook three months ago. That's how scared I am of online stuff. Um, there was an article there and everyone puts their comments under it and they were slaying us. <laughs> and, and I remember I felt, I was devoted. I didn't sleep at all that night. I was absolutely devastated. Thinking, how can someone actually think that, you know, we're that bad? Um, and you, I guess over time that just kind of you get used mm. to that. You grow a thicker skin and you just got to deal with it and remember the good things. It's funny though, you know, we Tim and I talk a lot about this concept of ego and um, stoicism, you know, not trying not to care what people think of you because it can't actively affect like great, cool philosophies. And I fully mm. agree with them, but it can be really difficult, can't it? Even when you're aware of it, you know, you anyone that says that they are unfazed by what other people say about them. You're either Kim Kardashian or you're full of shit. They, you do, right? Or both. <laughs> Those aren't mutually, they're mutually exclusive categories. You can't not. I mean, it affects you, right? We're humans. Hmm. Um, I get an email from an angry customer and it affects me um, because I think, well, this poor person has just spent 100 bucks on our product and they didn't get the experience they wanted. I hate it. I'll lay there at night thinking, oh, how can I make that better? So it, it still affects you. It's just how yeah. you deal with that. You know, you can't just brush it off. Um, I like to say I don't have an ego, but I, I do. I think everyone does. Yeah. And I think a lot of things you do are for your own kind of ego and, 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 and everyone wants to be successful. I think everyone wants to be respected and everyone wants to um, be remembered for something. And mm. regardless if you say you don't or not, there's, you know, there's a lot of factors going on. I think it's a funny thing um, coming from a background like the SAS where you've achieved some level of maybe success and some level of status, like you've done something that's, I guess, uh, generally looked up to. And then 
that can make it more difficult to put yourself out on a limb to fail. So, you know, the, the tall poppy, it's an incredibly supportive environment, but the tall poppy thing's still there. You know, there are people thinking, gee, I hope Pronk bloody, you know, takes that hit or whatever. Not actively maybe, but, you know, there's there's that out there and it can be... Very bit, Australian. It's very yeah. Australian. Yeah. We, we like cutting each other down. Uh, um, that's just what we do. And, <laughs> uh, you know, I remember... Uh, it was only about a year ago or something. I rang up uh, Robbo, Tim, Tim Robbo was on your yeah. show when he's um, having some dramas down there with his Tasmanian aviation business. Mm. Yeah. And we were talking yeah. about the same stuff, right? You know, no one wants to, no, no one wants that dent in their ego and, and we're, we're putting ourselves out there to be judged and to be ridiculed. And when you're in the SAS, you never had that because you were top of the game and you knew that you could just retire there and, you know, be, be, for the rest of your days and, and you'd still be okay but yeah to give that up to be able to to put yourself up for judgment is um is a tough call so yeah so anyone what about- anyone that sets anything up I, I totally respect you know i respect you two blokes for doing what you do you put yourselves out there all the time doing these <laughs> we just don't enable the comments for people to ridicule us and plus no one listens to it anyway mate so it's fine <laughs> Uh, we welcome all feedback, debrief at unforgiving60.com. <laughs> daily practices, Wayne, what daily practices, habits, routines do you incorporate in your life that maybe make you a bit more resilient? Do you do anything physically? Do you do any mindfulness meditation? I've got a, um, I'm a kind of a routine guy. I hate saying that because I never thought I was, but I think I am. I like getting up super early. So I'll get up at like five. I'll make myself a cup of coffee and I'll sit in, on my little round chair in the corner of the lounge room before the sun's up and just kind of read a book or, you know, just relax. Just just soak it up before the kids come up. This is, this is having young kids thing, right? And then the kids come charging out at six and then it's on. Um, <laughs> and then for the next two hours and then I'm you know, off doing things. Um, so I like, I like having my quiet time in the mornings. Um, I go to bed very early. Because, you know, I, 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 by the time we've had dinner and put the kids to bed, we're bugging. And um, it's, it's just, let's watch the show and go to sleep. Um, I do lots of different physical things. I think that's really important. Like, I love, weirdly enough, I used to hate marching in the army, but now I go hiking down in mountain ranges in Tasmania on my own. I don't know where that crept in, but I love it. I, I love going down there, being totally remote walking a trail for a seven-day hike and just sending myself crazy in my head. But I know that that's cleansing me. <laughs> you know, it's weird. Yeah. And on with, those trips, I purposely won't take any distractions. Yeah. With or without arm swing, breast pocket height. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> marching all the way there with my like, oh, <laughs> Didn't like marching. Now, now I love marching. <laughs> 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 um, a little pipe band in your head in time yeah so there's actually little things that i've kind of that i do to, I, I i still enjoy uh we spar every week kickboxing i swim i go stand up paddling i do i'm, I'm almost middle-aged now so i've got to do low kind of uh low impact oh yeah low impact um so yeah as much as possible go to the gym run it run a little bit when i can and uh I think staying fit is the is the key um, to having a healthy mind and, and all the other things that you hear everywhere. Um, yeah. What about conscious breath work? Do you do any um, focused breathing? I don't really do anything as far as um, relaxing techniques or anything like that. 
Um, I think, you know, I think maybe that's my little hour in the morning of sitting there in the, mm. in the dark corners, my, my time to kind of relax. Yeah, mindful, yeah. Um, or light the fire in the, in the backyard on a cold afternoon on a Saturday and stare at that for an hour. Um, so, yeah, that, that's, I guess, where I kind of cleanse myself and have time to think. Um, yeah. And also maybe... Also good mates. You know, that, that's, that's always great. Over a beer. Mm. And maybe an aligned question... Do you feel fulfilled socially and professionally? Um, I don't know. I, I guess so. I, I do feel fulfilled, that's for sure, but I, I'm not content. Um, there's always something else. Mm. <laughs> um, yeah. There's, there's no kind of holes in my life socially or, or, or you know, there's, there's nothing I'm kind of yearning to do, but... I, I always want to try something else. I think I'll always be like that. Um, there's always some new challenge to, 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 to go towards. Um, yeah, so I don't think I'll be resting anytime soon. We, we often quote that, um, that poem from the clock tower in Hereford, you know, the, the um, James Elroy Flecker thing, we are the pilgrim's master, we shall go always a little further. You know, that <laughs> idea of just, you know, there's always that next little thing we want to chase. And, I reckon you put it pretty beautifully. It's not a matter of being fulfilled, but it's a matter of wanting to go a little further, you know, to, to constantly see what's over that next crest. Mm. Yeah, I mean, we, we talk all the time, um, myself and the wife, about, you know, where do we want to settle down? What do we want to do? You know, what's the end state here? And, and I always find it kind of difficult to even think about that, weirdly enough. I'm loving where we're at now in life. I think everything's really good. And, um, yeah, the thought of, I guess... Settling down in uh, wherever it ends up being and, and kind of retiring, I think that would drive me crazy. Um, and there's a lot more I want to achieve in the business world, you know. I think I, think I achieved a fair amount in the, in the army world, in the military world. I'm, I'm happy there. I've got no regrets there. But there's still a few more boxes I want to tick in the, in the business world, and I think there's many more things that I can do, and I think I'd, I'm, I'm, I'm well-suited to do. Um, so, you know, I think there's... A, and, and the beauty is you can, you can go on the business world for a lot longer yet. Um, and uh, as long as I'm still challenged and learning and, uh, um, and enjoying it, I'm just going to keep doing it. Awesome. Yeah. Hey, mate, it's bloody great to chat. Great to chat to you guys. Great to see you as well. Yeah. I wish yeah. I was there. That would be perfect. I, thought... I was going to say we'd be, yeah. Yeah, we're sharing a few. <laughs> he raises a Peroni, I think, in the corner of the screen. It would be great to be sitting there and having a few beers and having a chat. But no, this has been great, man. I really appreciate you guys thinking of me on this. I mean, um, like I said, it's very daunting. Um, I respect both of you guys for what you've both done inside and outside of the military and, and in the business world, obviously. Um, so it's, uh, yeah, it's very... Uh, very dawning standing in front of you guys getting questions <laughs> but, uh, but thanks thanks for having me on no it's awesome mate we really appreciate it cheers brilliant I sailed around in those bumps in the night to y'all be counting the gloom I thought I had found my golden September in the middle of that purple June but one crowded hour would lead to my record room I know you like your boys who take their medicine From the bowl of their silver spoon Who'd run away with the dish and scale 
taught from the wounds who believe in the children's first FBIC. It's a pleasure pen meant for them, built for them, rent for them, but not for the likes of me. They're not for the likes of you and me. But one crowd allow you are the only one in the room. I'll sail on those bumps in the night to your beacon in the gloom. I thought I had found my golden September in the middle of that purple June. Oh, but one crowded hour would lead to my record room. Oh, but the music and the arts and truly believe that these form a key component of resilience and make the world a much more beautiful place. Music played on this podcast can reach over a thousand ears a day and the incredible artists who gave us permission to use their music on season one have been downloaded tens of thousands of times on Spotify. If you are a musician or band who wants to expose your songs to a global audience in over 100 countries, please get in touch with us at debrief at unforgiving60.com.